Hi, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Lenore von Stein, and this is another episode of The Facts. And this is the second in a series of discussions with Pauline Park. Uh, and, and, and Pauline Park is, is, the co is, is the president of the board of directors of Queen's Pride House, the chair of Niagara. Help me here, Pauline. The New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy. Gender Rights Advocacy. And uh, co-founding member of, uh, Queens, uh, of Queers Against Apartheid. New York City Queers Against Israeli Apartheid. New York City, apartheid. yes. And, 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 uh, and also led a campaign for transgender rights. Uh, that the transgender rights law that was enacted by the New York City Council in, in 2002. 2002. So we're going to talk a little bit about, in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about corruption. And uh, we seem to be in a very uh, particularly openly corrupt period of time. I mean, it's not even, you know, under the rug or anything. It's just, that's the way it goes. It's like we're all on Wall Street or something. Um, so, and, and corruption seems to be such an uh, it, it's inefficient way of running things. It, 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 it seems that it will eventually spiral down and kill itself from its inability to get stuff done while you're busy not trusting this one and not trusting that one and you, this one is this one's lying to you and that one's lying to you and Trump is made lying just one of my students I, I teach and one of my students said to me why why should we why should I tell the truth to should I should I tell the truth to people if they don't want to hear it <laughs> I think we're really living in a second gilded age and the fact is money plays a larger role in American democracy than in any other Western democracy, by far. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in Citizens United was incredibly misguided. The notion that money is speech mm -hmm. is really, frankly, ridiculous and bizarre. But as a result, the floodgates have opened and you have dark money. You have completely unaccountable funds coming into, flooding into the political arena. Um, Every presidential election draws more money than the previous election. Um, it's really almost unprecedented. And you see corruption at every level, federal, state, and local. Uh, personally, I think we see enormous, overwhelming evidence of the corruption of not only our president, Donald Trump, um, our governor, Andrew Cuomo, our mayor, Bill de Blasio. You see it in the... Uh, city council, in the state legislature, in Congress. Um, it's become really pervasive. And it's really a dangerous trend because when you see societies and polities, political uh, systems that have been thoroughly corrupted, um, you can see how they diminish the welfare of the entire country. Russia, for example, which is, has turned into a kleptocracy, um, Vladimir Putin is really the capo of all capos. He's mm -hmm. basically the Don. Um, uh, one uh, astute observer said that Russia, it's rather than thinking of Russia as a failed democracy, think of it as a successful mafia state. Mm -hmm. um, if we don't reserve, uh, reverse the current trends, the U.S. could be headed in the same direction. Now, I think we have a ways to go before we get there, but the corruption is enormous in this country. Uh, the role of money in politics at every level, uh, the fact that politicians, candidates to get elected to office basically have to sell their souls to the devil, as it were. And that's true even for 
uh, even for local offices. Like are you, are you are you saying that the reason that we're not quite there? Well, I'm just asking: is the reason that we're not quite there yet in in the land of Russia land? Is that there are still people uh, 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 on each at each level of government who have another idea about that they aren't just doing what their master, the person who gave them the bread to to get elected or to keep their job, wants them to do. Are there still people like that? There are a handful. I, I've worked directly with quite a few city council members and a number of state legislators. I actually think that. While all politicians are self-interested, there are some politicians, there are some elected officials and candidates who actually have a policy agenda and want to get things done. And frankly, a lot of them don't want to spend half their time or more uh, dialing for dollars. Mm -hmm. A lot of them find it not only tedious, but really um, problematic. Um, but they're trapped in the system. It's not only a question of individual corruption, although there's tons of that, it's also systemic. It's that our system is really the captive of big money interests. Um, Aristotle and the Greeks made distinctions between democracy, ruled by the demos, the people, versus um, oligarchy, which is ruled by the few. And we are really less and less democracy and more of an oligarchy. Um, and the fact is, uh, although I have friends who are um, fa faithful Democrats and loyal to the Democratic Party, the, Democrat, the Democratic Party is funded by the same big money interests as the Republican Party. Um, Hillary Clinton, in her failed presidential campaign last year, could not escape the taint of Wall Street. Uh, she had taken over $675,000 from Goldman Sachs, which is the leading investment uh, banking firm on Wall Street, and refused to release the transcripts of her speeches. Why? It's fairly obvious, because they would show how complicit she is uh, in the corruption of American politics by Wall Street. Um, she's by no means unique. This is a pervasive problem. Um, and as I say, it includes Democrats as well as Republicans. It's a question of systemic corruption as well as individual greed and lust for power. Well, as, as a New Yorker, with really not paying a whole lot of attention to city politics, but one of the ways throughout my life that I've judged how good a mayor is or bad is, is how does he deal with the real estate lobby and how does he deal with the cops? Exactly. And and Bill de Blasio has basically hitched his wagon to both the real estate industry and the NYPD. Uh, the recent revelations of his dealings with Jonah Rechnitz, who's a leading campaign contributor, the fact that he uh, used City Hall to grant Rechnitz special favors because of Rechnitz's campaign contributions uh, to uh, de Blasio's mayoral campaign uh, four years ago, uh, the fact that as soon as he was elected, Bill de Blasio turned his back on uh, the police accountability movement. Mm -hmm. uh, there are uh, quite a few organizations now that are involved in an attempt to hold the New York Police Department, the NYPD, accountable for uh, police harassment and brutality, which is pervasive in the city and in this country. Um, the fact that he turned his back on uh, animal welfare uh, movement uh, activists after getting into office, after having promised to um, 
and uh, to abolish the horse carriage trade industry. Right, he didn't get rid of it, did yeah. he? No, he didn't, do, didn't lift a finger as soon as he was elected. He completely and conveniently forgot about the fact that those people helped get him elected. So, um, you know, on every level we see corruption um, at City Hall with our mayor, Bill de Blasio, uh, who's running for re-election this year, with our governor, Andrew Cuomo, who's running for re-election next year, who has surrounded himself with corporate lobbyists, who's gotten more money from big money interests from Wall Street than any other governor uh, in the history of the state of what New York. What does he want to do, Cuomo? I mean, what, well, he's what running for president, yeah. obviously. And so he's trying to build up the biggest war chest possible. And how do you do that? You appeal to the big money interests. You see that with um, Democrats who are lining up to run for president as well as Republicans. You see that with uh, Kamala Harris, with Cory Booker, with Deval Patrick, um, all the uh, potential uh, presidential candidates in the Democratic as well as Republican parties are lining up uh, at the trough. You know, uh, the big money interests are funding them all. And uh, as the old saying goes, he who pays the piper calls the tune. I, I can't resist this. I had this friend many years ago. Her, her parents were sh Chicago political people. She grew up in this in this world of political, and would get would get would get Aunt Sally the job as the such and such because you know it's a good job, good pension, and everything. And and uh, she said to me, she she in her house. This is what her house was like. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Uh, um, uh, this 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 this. Negotiation of power for for what purpose is it? Is it just you know? In her family's case, it was a family business, and it was just to keep the make sure that everybody right. in the family had a decent job. Right. Uh, it doesn't seem that far away in what these other well, people are doing. Well, it's machine politics, and Tammany Hall lives. Um, Lost weed is alive and well and thriving here in New York. I mean, the historic origins of it are kind of interesting because, of course, when you had wave and wave of immigrants coming from Europe and then later Asia and other parts of the world in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, you had a lot of people coming over who needed jobs, who needed services. And so the Democratic Party became the party of immigrants. Uh, in order to service those immigrants, it set up uh, political machines, and those political machines help get people elected and sustain them in power. And uh, so there was a corrupting influence which continues to this day. Uh, of course, both parties are thoroughly corrupt, but uh, the heart of both parties, but here in this city, the Democratic Party, is this model of doing politics, which is a model of Tammany Hall, boss tweed, party bosses who call the shots. I mean, I've explained to uh, friends and activist, activist colleagues how uh, all of the speakers of the city council were elected. And up until Melissa Mark Viverita, who was really put in the speaker's chair by the mayor for the first time, that was fairly unprecedented, Bill de Blasio, her predecessors were all put in the speaker's chair by the Queen's party boss. And there's a particular political mechanism of how that works, and I could explain it to you. It's a little bit detailed. But essentially, the party bosses have played an outsized role in politics in the city. I live in Queens, and I have to deal with the Queens machine. Um, it is a corrupt machine. Um, they are, however, more skillful in their corruption than the Brooklyn machine. 
where people literally bring paper bags filled with cash. Uh, in Queens, you know, they, they're a little bit more sophisticated <laughs> than that, and they're able to use techniques and tactics which are just barely within the realm of the legal, uh, but are still nonetheless profoundly corrupt. So, what is a, what is a, you run nonprofit, nonprofits that succeed, do they get the bulk of their funding from government sources? So there are two types of uh, government funding that nonprofits in the city and the state receive. There's competitive funding, um, and Queen's Pride House receives basically only competitive funding. And then there's discretionary funding. Mm -hmm. Discretionary funding is at the discretion of a city council member, a member of the state legislature, a member of Congress. Now, that funding at the discretion of the elected official is often a source of real corruption. And I could point to specific cases, but essentially, when politicians give money to uh, 501c3s, they're often looking for something. And sometimes they're painting just barely within the lines, uh, and it's tit for tat, there's a, there's a quid pro quo, and sometimes it actually goes beyond uh, the realm of the legal, and we saw this in the case most flagrantly with Pedro Espada, uh, who is indicted and convicted, um, a politician from the Bronx, a Democrat from the Bronx. Uh, we've seen this time and again with um, the leadership in the uh, state legislature, uh, the Speaker of the Assembly, Sheldon Silver from Manhattan, the uh, last Senate Majority Leader, Dean Skelos, and uh, the temptation is simply too great. So discretionary funding and competitive funding. But even competitive funding is a little bit problematic in the way it's set up. Uh, nonprofits in this uh, city and in this state uh, can all compete for funding from various different types of organizations. Uh, one of the problems with LGBT organizations is they get so little of it. Do you know the percentage of funding from all sources, both government and private foundations, uh, that LGBT-specific organizations get in the U.S.? It's one-tenth of one percent. Mm. So from the get-go, uh, LGBT-specific organizations uh, get only a teeny tiny fraction of the total amount of funding available through government sources and through private foundations. Uh, Transgender-specific organizations are only a teeny tiny fraction of that one-tenth of one percent. I don't think anyone's actually even calculated it. It's so small. Uh, then when you look at the needs of LGBT people of color, LGBT immigrants, for example, um, which are constituencies that Queen's Pride House serves, um, at least half of our clients are people of color and or immigrants, uh, many of them very recent immigrants. Uh, the amount of funding available for those uh, populations is inadequate to the task at hand. Uh, there's also a tremendous amount of bureaucracy and red tape. I remember one city council member once offered Niagara, my organization, the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy, a small grant through uh, the Department of Youth and uh, Community Development. It was a very small grant, it was about $3,000. Um, I looked at the paperwork and 
ultimately decided not even to pursue it because the amount of paperwork was so onerous mm. in relation to this really small grant that it frankly was not worth it. So there's a whole bunch of impediments. There's a whole bunch of uh, structural impediments to LGBT organizations, especially those serving people of color, to get adequate funding. Then you throw in the fact that the discretionary funding is often um, with strings attached, uh, is often used or even manipulated by uh, elected officials. Like a string. Can you give me an example of a string? So, <laughs> name names here. My city council member, uh, Danny Drum, Daniel Drum, um, who has basically essentially put Queen's Pride House on a blacklist for discretionary funding because he has a vendetta against the organization and has basically warned other council members not to fund Queen's Pride House. Instead, he's diverted funding that would have gone to the only LGBT community center in the borough to other organizations to do LGBT-related uh, work. Um, and uh, Make the Road New York is one recipient of his funding, his discretionary funding, uh, even the Jewish Center of Jackson Heights, which has um, had a number of different LGBT events. And so discretionary funding can be used to reward friends and punish enemies. And it is, in fact, a potential source of corruption. Non as my understanding of none, I've run a nonprofit for a long time, but gets barely any funding. Uh, nonprofits are doing the task, are, are, are doing work that profit-making organizations wouldn't do because it's not going to make a profit, ergo, that's the, they're important to the society that way. Yes. And then if you pick from among those nonprofits, the ones that will do your, be your handmaidens or in some way yeah. uh, uh, not rock the boat too much, those seems to be the, the choices. That's a really, well, what can I say, flies yeah. in the face of the reason for it being. There's some serious issues with the nonprofit industrial complex, as people call it, yes, that need further discussion and examination. So, so we've got Cuomo uh, taking money. We've got, uh, and he doesn't, it's not, people think when they take money, because oh, he's going to live high on the hog, but he's already living high on the hog, so right. that's not, it's, it's, it's just for power to... Well, you know, the selfish pursuit of power is what politicians, most politicians are about, and you see that flagrantly in the case of Andrew Cuomo um, with um, Bill de Blasio, with many other politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, and they will do anything uh, in pursuit of that power. Um, you, there's a whole history going back, you know, 200 years in this country uh, where you see politicians, uh, some of whom fortunately are finally held accountable, um, who are prosecuted and convicted, but others who engage in forms of corruption that are perhaps subtler and that are perhaps just barely within the bounds of the legal. And our system, unfortunately, um, has too few mechanisms for accountability. I think ultimately the responsibility lies with us. It, uh, it really rests with and depends on an informed and engaged public. But you have this vicious cycle because citizens are so turned off by this disgusting display of corruption and selfish pursuit of power that they tune out. Uh, don't follow politics and policy closely. Um, or if they do at all, they do through a lens 
of uh, superficial identity politics. Um, so there's a relatively small number of people who follow politics and policy closely in this city, in this state, in this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of them, at least half of them are right-wing Republicans who are pursuing a policy agenda that is really injurious to uh, the, uh, the common welfare of the country. So basically, in my estimate, I mean, this is a complete uh, guesstimate, but I think there are probably 10% of the American public who not only follow politics and policy very closely, but are committed to progressive principles. That is extremely difficult to uh, advance a progressive policy agenda with only 10% of the public uh, in active support of it. So people need to get engaged. They need to articulate and enforce an ethic of responsibility and accountability. We need to hold candidates, politicians, elected officials, appointed officials accountable for their actions. And that starts with every single one of us. And it's a hard thing to do because the mainstream media, frankly, are in the infotainment business. It's a little bit of information larded with a whole lot of entertainment and with uh, commercials. I mean, the, 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 the nightly news segment on the networks, uh, it's half an hour, but it's actually 17 minutes if you take out the commercials. And when you take out the, you know, the, the fuzzy kind of the warm fuzzy human interest stories and the entertainment related stuff you have maybe five to seven minutes of hard news and even that hard news is really softened by the fact that you have commercial underwriters you've it's supported by commercial enterprises right so if walmart or amazon or monsanto are among your advertisers, are you really going to do heavy-duty, hard-hitting investigative reporting on Walmart, Monsanto, or Amazon? Probably it, not. It, it doesn't even seem to matter some, even uh, with the health care debate. Um, for a long time, it's clear that the, 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 the stats on people when they, when they poll them, uh, they want this health care. And, yes. and, and the same people, will, the, the newscasters will say, it's not politically feasible. It's not politically feasible because people in power who are like reshaping the world in some image that they, you know, aside from the money they're, you know, how high on the hog they're living, they don't want it, right. but the rest of us want it. So, and, 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 the, and the newscaster is, is, is on the left, on the left, there is no left in the, in the mainstream. <laughs> There's no uh, left left. But I mean, you know, if you think about healthcare, who controls the healthcare industry? Who controls access to healthcare? It's the insurance industry. And although the Affordable Care Act had a few good things in it, such as uh, prohibiting discrimination based on pre-existing conditions, what it really did, Obamacare actually made the health insurance industry even more central to the provision of healthcare and the denial of healthcare. So uh, the reality is there's only one way to get to universal healthcare, which is through a single payer government-run system, such as Medicare for All. I'm delighted to hear that Bernie Sanders just introduced a bill in Congress to that effect. I just came back from Europe. Uh, I was talking about various health care issues with friends in Norway, and they were absolutely shocked at the um, stupidity of our system, the cruelty of our system, where people are basically bankrupted for um, health care issues that in a system like Norway's or France's 
uh, would be pretty easily taken care of. Uh, there's only one way uh, to universal health care, and that is through a single-payer, government-run system. Yes, certainly, certainly. And the, the, the issue of the cruelty of the American uh, uh, way of looking at each other, you know, maybe the Europeans saw how cruel they could really be as they came out of World War II, how nasty they could be to World War I and World War II. And the, the Americans didn't have to then fight that on, on, on American territory. Uh, so they, well, America has such a long way to go, so much power and such a long way right. to go. Right, and we, we now have a neoliberal economy, which is a rapacious form of capitalism that is relatively new. It's really about 30, 40 years old. And uh, it's sort of like capitalism on steroids. Um, and uh, it really relies on the fact that there's a free uh, mobility of capital flows, but not of labor. And there's a huge internal contradiction there. And that is actually at the nexus, the crux of our immigration problems in this country, the fact that we have free flow of capital across national boundaries, but no free flow of labor, which is actually a contradiction if you think even in terms of neoclassical economics. Uh, so it's something that we need to examine, but something that rarely gets discussed in any um, analytic uh, manner. Yes, because it's it's really the the fixes in and, and again and uh, it's what uh, we we just have we're, we're almost at the end here. But if you could if you could just how has capitalism affected uh, human potential? Oh gosh! <laughs> in the next thirty seconds, um, that is an enormous question. I mean, I think capitalism is a very effective system for accelerating the formation of capital, but it is also an incredibly inefficient system for harnessing human potential. And uh, I think that's something that we need to examine. I've written a little bit about this and about these other issues on PaulinePark.com. You could go to my website and look at some of my writings. Uh, but I think it's really worth examining uh, in greater detail. I think you know, Oregon just passed Oregon just passed uh, health care for all, but it said one percent of the population is left out. I don't know who are these one percent that they left out of this, left out of the story. So here we are uh, at the end of this, uh, these 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 discussions, and I, I thank you very much for. Uh, gracing our table and joining us. Thanks for having me. Really, really. And we got a lot of other things to talk about, so maybe some other time you'll come and chat with us about all the other things and how the world works. We didn't even talk about the cops yet. Yeah. Uh, having me back. Check out PaulinePark.com for some of my writings and more about my activism. Here we go. Here we go. Okay, everybody. So adios for now. <laughs>